seeking the Lord's blessing, we'll turn to the part of his word which we read, the book of the Judges and chapter 16. verse 20. Judges chapter 16 at verse 20. And she said, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he awoke out of his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times before and shake myself. And he knew not that the Lord was departed from him. Especially these words that he knew not that the Lord was departed from him. Over the past few weeks, we've seen how God raised up a deliverer in this man, Samson. And he was raised to free Israel from the yoke of the Philistines. And we saw how he led a consecrated life for the first 30 years or so of his life. He was a Nazarite dedicated to God, marked out by his seven locks of hair. And we also saw how he took the gospel to the Philistines in the form of a riddle. And how the Philistines rejected the gospel. They played with it and mocked it and rejected it. And because of that, God unleashed judgments upon the Philistines through Samson. And that reminds us that if we do not embrace the gospel through the Lord Jesus Christ, then he himself shall become our judge. And having rejected Samson, Samson therefore becomes the means of God's judgment being poured out upon themselves. And we saw how Samson visited them in judgment. And that judgment culminated in the battle of Lehi, which we looked at last week, when Samson, with the moist, fresh, hard jawbone of Anas, slew himself 1,000 men. And that was after having been betrayed himself by the royal tribe of Judah. And that in itself foretold the Lord's own suffering and conquest. For he was betrayed, and he was betrayed by his own. But still, at the height of his weakness, he turned and defeated his enemies. And we saw how Samson thirsted after his conquest, and how the Lord lifted him up. And we saw how the same thing was true regarding Christ on the cross. After his conquest, he thirsted. But God raised his head before he passed into the life to come. Now, although the men of Judah didn't fight with Samson, still, after the battle of Lehi, they appear to have acknowledged him at last as God's Messiah for them, or as God's judge and leader. And we're told right at the end of chapter 15 that he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. And that was from approximately 1075 BC to 1055 BC when Samson was accepted as a judge in Israel. Now that whole period of 20 years is passed over in silence. And that shouldn't make us forget what he did in that time. He was a judge. He ruled. He taught. He taught the people in the word. He judged their cases. He was ruler in Israel for that length of time. In other words, when you add these 20 years onto his 30 years of consecration, you'll find that for 50 years, Samson lived, in many respects, a model life of holiness. And he was a judge over Israel. But then sadly, in the last year of his life, we come across a different Samson. In the very last year, we find two incidents which indicate a man that has fallen away from the Lord and has backslidden into sin. Now that's a sad thing to look at. And it's a sad thing for a man to experience or for anyone to hear about. But it is here and it is written. And it is written by the Spirit of God for our learning, for our instruction, for our warning, and even looking at the end of it, for our comfort. And so I want, with the Lord's blessing, to look with you 
at the last year of Samson's life, as we have it brought before us here. Now you'll notice just before I go into that, that the very last verse of chapter 15 says this, that he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines twenty years. And then the very last verse of chapter 16 says exactly the same thing. Or the very last sentence in that verse, we're told that he judged Israel twenty years. Now there you have, as I indicated last week, two brackets. And they mark off the last year of his life from the previous near 50 years. These brackets take within themselves this period in Samson's life, the last year, which was a year of declension in which he fell into sin. And if anyone thinks he stands, let him take heed, lest he fall. Now, I want us tonight, God willing, to look at his fall into sin and the consequences which that brought into his own life. And God willing, next Sabbath evening, we'll look at the restoration of Samson and his conquest in the temple. But tonight we'll look at his fall into sin and the consequences which that brought into his life. Now you'll notice that there were two incidents in chapter 16, distinct incidents. The first involves a woman in Gaza, and the second incident involves a woman in the valley of Sorek by the name of Delilah. Now both these episodes are connected, and one, I think, marks out the beginning of Samson's declension, and the other marks out the end. And there are certain things through in Gaza, which if you look at them and mark them, are bound to end up in the situation which you find with Delilah in the valley of Sorek. And backsliding is like that, sin is like that, backsliding is like that, it is a slide. It is a downward progression, or a downward regression from one thing to another. And because certain things are not dealt with, then this is where it ends. And in that respect, Samson's life becomes a lesson for us all. Now I want to look first of all, very briefly, at the incident in Gaza, but then look more fully at what happened with Delilah. Now first of all, in Gaza, we're told right at the beginning of chapter 16 that Samson went to Gaza and saw there an harlot and went in unto her. Now Gaza was one of the leading Philistine cities. They had five major cities and Gaza was the southernmost city. And Samson went there, we don't know why. We are not told. The whole purpose of his mission is not revealed. But when he was there, he saw a harlot. He didn't seek one out, but he saw one. And Samson was drawn aside by his, the power of his old nature, and he went in unto this harlot. And he finds himself off his guard, or we find Samson off his guard, and he's caught in this net. Now the word goes round quickly in Gaza that Samson is in the city. And when Samson is around, you cannot mistake him. He has a distinctive appearance. There are the seven locks of hair which have marked him out from his youth as a man consecrated to God. Samson, the mighty warrior, is in the town. But the word goes out where he is. The Philistines get ready. They don't ambush the house. They live in fear of him. What they do is they gather around the gates of the city and they wait there until the break of day and there they are ready to ambush him. But somehow, mysteriously, Samson understands what is happening. Perhaps I'll come back to that later on tonight. He understands what is happening and at midnight he gets up and he goes out to the gates of the city when the men are sleeping and resting, when they're not expecting any activity to take place. He takes the gates, he pulls them off their hinges, bar and all, puts them on his back and goes up the hill that faces towards Hebron with them. Again, a mark of power and a mark of strength. He has done that as the mighty man of God, as God's warrior and as God's deliverer. He took the gates of the city of sin and iniquity on his back and out on top of the hill. And to all intents and purposes, that looks like another triumph, another triumph on the part of Samson, the mighty man of God. But I'll tell you this, 
there is something wrong with this incident and there is something different here in comparison with what we had before and what's wrong is simply this that Samson is in sin he is in sin he saw a harlot and he went into her he was unprepared and like David he was caught and he was ensnared now what I want you to notice and in many ways the only thing I want you to notice about this incident here is this there is no reference here to the leading and to the guidance of the Spirit of God and that is different to what we find before in Samson's life it was the Spirit who sent him down to Timnath it was the Spirit that came upon him when he met the lion roaring against him and when he tore that lion apart with his bare hands in the strength of God the Lord it was the spirit that came upon him it was the spirit that came upon him at Lehi when he snapped the ropes with which he had been tied and he slew the Philistines with the jawbone of Hanas but there is no mention of the spirit of God on him here at all it is not the spirit who took him to Gaza and neither are we told that it was the spirit who made him take the gates and put him on his back and go up on top of the hill now you would say well that must have been the spirit of God well indeed it must but it is significant that we are not told it there is a literary device here perhaps you could call it that it is removed from the narrative as though Samson is moving or he is beginning to move in his own strength in his own power and in his own wisdom and you'll notice this too although he takes the gates he does nothing about it he doesn't go in to conquer he doesn't try and rally anyone else to try and conquer he just takes the gates off and he leaves it there as though it is a show of strength and a show of power it is just an exploit which he does and he leaves it at that there seems to be no reason for it it is just in many respects a show of strength and then again notice this there is no word of repentance no word of change no word of sorrow or of turning away he has gone in to the harlot and to all intents and purposes that is that however he felt about it there is no word of remorse or of repentance it is just left there and that gives us the impression that Samson just never dealt with it and my friends if something like this comes in and it is not dealt with it is bound to grow and it is bound to resurface in one way or another and so it does it resurfaces in the same last year of his life and it resurfaces in the valley of Sorek with this woman Delilah and it's this particular incident that I want to look at with you here as the Lord enables us now a few months after this the Philistines hear news that is good news for them and that is that the mighty Samson is involved in an immoral relationship with a woman in the valley of Sorek by the name of Delilah. Now it's often said that this woman was a harlot, but we're not told that. That is not said in the scriptures at all. It's interesting that the Philistines feel that they can have some lever on this woman. They feel that. That is why the lords of the Philistines go up to her and they make their proposition to her. But we're not told that she was a harlot at all. But the Philistines are encouraged to hear that he is involved in this because they well remember how his own wife was able to get the upper hand over him originally. They can remember that. How she pressed him to the point where she got the riddle out of him. And so they believe that if he is in this situation, she can press him to the point where she can reveal the secret of his strength. And to the Philistines, it's just magic. They wish to know the power, the source of it, so they can weaken him and torment and afflict him. And so the five lords of the Philistines pay a visit to Delilah. Now the five lords are just the five rulers of the five major cities. They had their own structure of government, and over each city was one overlord. And the five lords of the Philistines pay a visit to Delilah's home and they have a proposition to make and that is this that if she discovers the secret of his strength they will each give her 1,000 
100 pieces of silver. In other words, 5,500 pieces of silver altogether. And Delilah is persuaded by the proposition. And she lays it in her heart and she purposes to betray the Messiah or to betray the deliverer of Israel for 5,500 pieces of silver. Now who is this woman? Well, very often we're told she's a Philistine, but again, I wish to draw attention to this, that we're not told that she is a Philistine. She lived in the valley of Sorek, which was within the boundary of the tribe of Judah. And it is quite possible that this woman is an Israelite. Quite possible that she's an Israelite. But a woman, perhaps, of notorious morals. And maybe that's what persuades these people to try and get one up on her. Now, notice... The reason I incline towards her being an Israelite is this. That one theme running through Samson's life is that of betrayal. And betrayal is always from the inside. It is not from the outside. A betrayer comes from within. He is first betrayed by his own wife. He is secondly betrayed by the men of Judah who should have helped him. And third, he is betrayed by this woman Delilah. And I often wonder... Was she an Israelite woman, either of the tribe of Judah or even of his own tribe Dan, which also bordered on the valley of Sorek? And I think another thing that inclines us towards that is this. The sheer size of the sum of the money which the Philistines are offering to her. Now, perhaps if I put it into a modern um, context it will help us to understand it when when it talks here of 5,500 pieces of silver we are talking about approximately 150 pounds in weight of silver now we're talking about a government of a country giving 150 pounds in weight 65 kilos of silver to this woman thousands upon thousands hundreds of thousands of pounds worth to this woman, to betray the deliverer into their hand. Was she a harlot? Well, I don't know, but I want you to notice this, that Samson loved this woman. Now, I think that is important. He loved the woman. We are told in verse 4 that it came to pass afterward that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And again we're told the same thing in a roundabout way in verse 15. When Delilah says this to him, How can you say, I love thee, when thine heart is not with me? Now that tells us that Samson had a love for the woman and had that kind of commitment towards her, where he evidently trusted her and he thought that she trusted him. But how wrong he is. Although she might be of his own people, she is bought. And she is bought with money. And that 150 pound weight of silver is enough for her to take the man of God and to betray him into the hands of the Philistines. Now my friend Samson is at fault and he is in sin. But so is she at fault and so is she in sin. And what's more, she knows who he is. And she knows how God has used him. And she knows of his life and his consecration and his power. But even that was not sufficient to stop her. And it was one thing, as it were, to be entangled with him for which they are both to blame. But it was another thing, even deeper and worse for her, to take him, who he was, and to yield him over into the hands of those who would kill him. For that is doubtlessly what they would do. They would destroy him. But for money, she did it. She is bought. There was a famous quotation that every man has his price. No, not every man has his price. But most men have a price. And most women have a price. And she is bought. And she is bought for filthy lucre. For 30 pieces of silver. Judas Iscariot. The one disciple from the royal tribe. He betrays the son of man. What is that 30 pieces worth? When he discovers what he has done. When the awful blackness of it comes home to him, he casts away the 30 pieces of silver from him. 
He's gained the whole world, but he's lost his soul. And that's what Delilah has done. She's gained the world, but she's lost her soul. She has trifled herself with holy things, and she has sold them into the hands of the Philistines. Uh, how many people are bought, bought from the way of truth, and bought from the way of righteousness. So the minute Delilah discovers the plan, she has to devise herself. And she does. She has to think up how to bring this secret out of Samson. Now I'll apply this in a moment, but there are some aspects of this story which I think are important for us to understand. And if we don't understand them, we lose it all. I think we have to understand it in this way, that Delilah comes up with a kind of game, a kind of amusement. And in this game or amusement, she's going to gradually prize the secret out of Samson. And the game is this. She come from. And of course Samson pretends to give the reason. And she carries it out. And then she says, the Philistines are upon you. And that is a kind of game. The Philistines are upon you. And the minute he hears that, he shakes himself. He shakes himself loose. And his strength is revealed again. Now it's important to understand that the Philistines are not appearing at this point. She is just shouting it. Some other signal must be given before the Philistines actually come out. Samson is not aware that there are Philistines in a chamber nearby. He's just not aware of that. To him it is just a game. The Philistines are upon you. So up he comes and he casts off his rope. Or he does whatever. Three times this works. First of all, he says, if you bind me with the intestines of animals. That is really what the expression means. Probably catgut or something to that effect. If you bind me, he says, with that. Then he says, I, I shall be as weak as any other man. And she does it. She binds him with the animal intestines. But when she shouts, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. He snaps the gut like that. And his strength is showed. He does it a second time. He says, if you take new ropes. Ropes, he says, that have never been used. And he sounds so serious. And he sounds so persuasive, but he's playing the game. Bind me, he says, with new ropes. And I'll become as weak as any man. And she does it. She binds him with the ropes. The Philistines are upon you, Samson. He snaps the ropes as though they had been consumed by fire. The third time, she begins to press him. Tell me the real secret of your strength. And notice, he's moving towards his hair. He says, you take the seven locks of my head and weave them into the loom. And fasten that loom, he says, to the wall. And I shall become weak like any other man. And she weaves the seven distinct long locks of his head, weaves them into the loom. And she fastens the whole thing to the wall. And then she shouts, the Philistines are upon you. And Samson takes the whole thing out of the wall. And he shakes himself loose by the strength of the Lord. Now for him, it's just a game. For him, it's just a game. But it's not a game for her. Why? Because she has put the Philistines inside the chamber. They're waiting in the house. They're not appearing. So Samson at no point is suspicious. He doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't recognize that a snare is being laid for him by the world. A snare is being laid for him there by someone caught in sin. And if he had been more upright, he'd have recognized it himself. But he's gone. He's lost his eyes spiritually. He doesn't detect what's going on. You'll notice each time Samson shakes himself loose, he doesn't encounter any Philistines. We're told that the first time that he got up and break the withes as when it touched his fire. He doesn't meet any Philistines. The same happens when he takes his hair out from the loom. He doesn't meet any Philistines simply because the prearranged signal has not been given. There is a kind of a word between Delilah and the Philistines which goes like this, that unless she gets a clear signal, unless they get a clear signal from her, then he still has his strength. And after three times, the Philistines are disillusioned. And when Samson is away, they come to her, and they say that they're going home, and they return to their home. 
Now that makes this woman more determined than ever before. And next time Samson comes back, we're told that she vexed him with all the power of the temptress and with the subtlety of Satan. She comes and she presses him, we're told, daily with his words and urged him so that his soul was vexed to death. And she's saying, why? You tell me. And you tell me that you love me. And you're supposed to have told me the truth and you're just mocking me. She says, I really want to know. Yes, it's been a game and it's been amusing, but I want to know the secret of your strength. And at last, Samson relinquishes and he tells and says, Since I've been a child, no razor has touched the hair of my head. But, he says, if I be shaven, my strength will go from me and I shall become weak, weak like any other man. And immediately, Delilah knows that this time it's the truth. She knows that. And she sends a message down to the lords of the Philistines. Come up, she says, once more. He has told me everything in his heart. And sure enough, she lulls him to sleep. And she has it arranged for a man to come through quietly and to cut his hair as he lies asleep. And she was, he was lulled to sleep on her lap, on her knees. She left him there, his hair is cut, but she checks it. She goes to him first herself, and we're told that she began to afflict him. In other words, she began the game again. She tried, as it were, to deal with him in a sporting kind of way, and she recognized immediately that Samson's strength was not the same. There was something in this man that was different now. He was not the same as he was. His strength had left him, and she allows him to go back to sleep. Notice how often the word sleep is appearing. I'll come back to that. She leaves him to go back to sleep and then she rouses him with these words, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But this time it is no joke. In the meantime she has gone through to the chamber and she said, When I give the call, come and make yourself known. The Philistines are upon you. Samson gets up and they enter the room. But Samson says, I'll get up. He says, as I have always done. I'll get up in my strength and I'll shake myself. And the word means... I'll roar as a lion roars. And was that not what he always was? Was he not the lion of God? I'll roar, he says, as I roared before. But he knew not that the Lord had departed from him. And he had become weak like any other man. And the Philistines empowered him. They took him to Gaza. They put out his eyes. And they put him in a prison cell. And there he grinded out the corn. Now, friends, there are several things I want to bring before you here. There is, there is every indication in this chapter of a backslidden man and a man who has fallen away from the Lord and slid into a path of sin. All the symptoms of that spiritual disease are inside this story. And I think that relates to what I said a moment ago. He is constantly asleep. He is constantly falling asleep. Even when Delilah afflicts him there, still he falls back into his sleep. He is in sloth. He is in spiritual sloth, and he has fallen into that. Now, let's see some of the marks of that in this narrative. First of all, there is pride. And I've no doubt that pride comes through in this whole narrative. Pride in what? Well, pride in his own strength. Or I should say, and that's what makes it more sad, pride in his God-given strength. He became proud of what God had made him, as though he had made himself that. Now it's a remarkable thing to be proud of something that doesn't really belong to you, but it can happen. It can happen to the Lord's people. Many of the Corinthians in the early Corinthian church had gifts some of them had the gift of speaking in foreign languages. But we're told that many of them began to exercise that gift for sure. God had given it to them, but they stood up and paraded their gift. The gift of being able to speak in other languages which God had bestowed upon them. We're told also that Hezekiah had his heart lifted up. Why? Well, this is mysterious too. Because of an answer to prayer that God had given him. God had given him a great sign and extended his life by 15 years 
and Hezekiah suddenly became the talk of the town. And Hezekiah's heart became lifted up to the point where God had to humble him and bring him low so that he would rediscover what he was and who he was. God had to bring him low to teach him that. His heart became lifted up with pride. Lifted up with pride. And here, Samson is beginning to glory in what he has. And I think there's a trace of that even in Gaza, when he takes the gates and carries them out on his back. It is almost like an exploit. It is almost like a show. And the way he does everything here, he is playing with his strength. You notice that? He's making a game of his strength. Obviously, he is glorying in it, and he is not using it for the Lord as he should. He is rather using it for himself. Now, my friends, we have to beware pride. You have you gift, and I have mine. The Lord has bestowed some on you, some on me, some on all his people, whatever they be. And it's amazing what you can begin to glory in, isn't it? All of the Lord's people know that, how easy it is for you to lapse into glorying in something that God has done in you or God has done through you, however small it may be. It can be even as little as getting particular liberty in prayer or something like that in a meeting. And off you go and you glory in it. As though it was yourself. As though it was off you. How easy it is to become proud. And Samson became proud of his own strength. After all, he was the object of attention. And that gradually told on him. You notice along with that that there is this. That he has a light view of sin. He is beginning to play around with it to the point where he is entering into it and going further and further. Now I'm sure he begins on the periphery like everybody else. After all, what's he doing in Gaza anyway? We're not told that the Spirit took him there as we're told that the Spirit took him everywhere else. He saw a harlot, yes, but why did he see a harlot? I suppose you have to go back of the thing and ask, well, how or why? Was he where he should not have been? Was he somewhere where it was too easy for his eye to be ensnared and for his heart to be attracted? He saw her and went into her. He didn't purpose to go to one, but he saw her and went into her. Now things like that, friends, don't just happen. There is something usually going on in the heart that prepares a person for that. It's the same with David. Yes, he was on the upper room. He was on the rooftop and he saw the woman bathing. But there's something lying back of that. What was it? That David was where he shouldn't have been in the first place. We're told at the beginning of the chapter that it was the time when kings went out to war. And he's at home in the middle of the day, not doing his duty. And when you're out of your duty, well, that is where Satan roams. That is where the lion roars and the lion devours. And that's what happens here. He's wandering down to Gaza and he sees a harlot and in he goes. He is moving on the periphery of sin. He's not careful where he's going, what he's doing, and he is ensnared. And you'll notice that everything to him in connection with this sin becomes a game. But sin doesn't play games. He's playing with sin. Sin's not playing with him. That's the tragedy of the thing. Sin doesn't know how to play. It only knows how to fight. Never plays games. It only fights battles. And it can sometimes seduce you as though it's your friend. As though it will do you good. Come with me and I'll do you good. But sin is only seeking an opportunity to slay and to devour you and to destroy you. And that is exactly what is happening here. Samson feels himself in control of sin. And he plays around with it. But all the time... Sin is in control of himself. And you'll notice how he's going deeper and deeper into it. He feels as though he's in control, but he's not. It is rather gaining control over him. So he's playing around with sin. And along with that, there is something else. And we'll put the three together in a moment. There is presumption. Samson has, and I think this is an awful thing when it comes into us all, he has a feeling that he is somehow spiritually indestructible. He has a feeling that it doesn't seem to matter what he does 
that God will be with him and God will be for him. As though he's always going to be bailed out. And he's never going to suffer the consequences of sin, even perhaps as others have suffered the consequences of sin. And that doesn't come through anywhere as clearly as it does in verse 20. When he wakes up and he sees suddenly the Philistines around him and he gets up and he says, I will shake myself as I did before. Wrong. He will not shake himself as he did before. And why will he not do that? Because God will not be mocked. That is why. God will not be mocked. Now it's interesting that even in Gaza, God gave him the strength to put his gates on his back and to go out. But it's significant that sometimes you can misuse a thing like that. You know, God might not visit you right now with the chastisement which your sin deserves. But it's very important that you still take stock of what your sin is. Because if you don't take stock of it, you're liable to misinterpret God's easy dealing with you as though it's a signal that you can just go on down the path that you're going. Well, it's not so. It is not so. Samson misused the long-suffering of God here. But God will not be mocked. I'll visit their faults with rods and their sins with chastisements. God will come. Because God has his own honor to vindicate. He has a world to convince of the truth of the gospel. And he's not going to allow his own cause to be brought down by open and flagrant sin on the part of any child of his own. And I have to remember that, and so do you. He will not be mocked in that respect, and he will come and he will visit with chastisements. Oh, you say, yes, but Samson was saved in the end. Oh, yes, he was saved in the end. But don't despise the chastisement of God. And let myself, whenever I am contempla- or whenever I am confronted with a temptation, let me never think that God's chastisement upon me will be an easy thing. Ask the Corinthians, who are dying in Corinth because of how lightly they viewed the Lord's table. Ask them whether the chastisement of the Lord within the covenant is a light or easy thing. Ask Samson, blind, no eyes in the prison cell, grinding a massive stone round and round, a job done by a donkey. Ask him when he's doing that day and night if the chastisement of the Lord is a light and easy thing. And yet sometimes we can play with sin as though we are inviting or courting the judgment of God. And when it doesn't come, you conclude it will never come. How strange that the Christian can lapse almost into the kind of thought of an unbeliever. And all the time, Samson presumes he's in control. Now remember, I just said a little bit there earlier on. Notice how he's getting closer to the secret. At length, when she keeps pressing him, he goes to his hair. No, he still thinks he's in control. He says, I can even talk about this. And I can even dance around it, he says, about this whole idea, but still not give the game away. I am in control of what is going on, but he is not. He is not in control. And the same thing can happen with yourself. And I am conscious that we're living in a world where the professing people of God are pushing the boundaries more and more with respect to where you can go and what you can do. And that just seems to be a symptom of the day and generation in which we live. Pushing the boundaries. Are you sure that you're in control when you're going where you're going? Look, there are some places in this world, and let's be real about this, there are some places where when you walk in the door, what meets you is nothing to do with God. It's nothing even to do with purity or righteousness or anything like that. It is just quite simply the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. You don't have to look for it. It's there. It is written all over it. Welcome here, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. But remarkably, some people seem to enter these things and these places and feel that you can guard yourself from what's going on in there. Well, my friends, the simple rule to me is, if you play with fire, you get burned. It is like that. If you play with fire, you will get burned. Take care, my friend, where you go. 
take care, Christian man, especially Christian young man and Christian young woman, take care where you go, what you go to see. You think you're in control. Samson thought he was in control. He had no control. And before it was finished, sin had him down there, under its foot, grinding him away in a prison cell. It can look so alluring, so friendly, but at the end of the day, it is just the charm and the attractiveness of the serpent that will one day destroy you. And it's interesting, but I think God, on a couple of occasions, is, as it were, arresting Samson. For example, when he gets up at midnight, I often wonder why he got up at midnight in Gaza. How did he know what was going on? Was it God who told him? Was it perhaps even at that stage his conscience that was troubling him as to what he had done? That he had gone into this woman, his conscience was troubling, but he gets up at midnight and God gives him grace to go on and he's got the gates upon his back. And even here when Delilah is pressing him, you would think that his mind would work like this. Well, I remember what happened when my wife pressed me for the riddle. She got it out of me. But it doesn't seem to move him because Samson is asleep. Samson is asleep and he is just going on. And let me warn you and warn myself too. And the warning is this. If you're driving a car and if you cut the engine and you've got the clutch down, that car is going to go on for some time. But it's going to come to a stop. And that's the way it can be sometimes with Christian people. God doesn't withdraw himself immediately from them. They just go on cruising, but they stop because one day God is going to come down and to visit that. He's just not going to let his own people go on like that. And certainly when it comes out into the open he has to come for the sake of his own name. For the sake of his own name. Let me apply that too to the world. To those of you who may still be outside of Christ. Let me tell you this. Sin too is courting you. And sin too is playing with you. Although I shouldn't say that. You're playing with it. But it is fighting with you. It seeks to keep you in its grip. And to keep you in its power. And you are governed by the lust of the eye. The lust of the flesh. And the pride of life. But the Lord Jesus Christ says. That if your eye offends you. He says pluck it out. It is far better for you to enter into life maimed. Than to enter with all your members into hell. Or if your right hand offends you, if it is constantly causing you to sin, then he says, cut it off, because it is better for you to enter into life again maimed than it is having all your members to enter into a lost eternity where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched, he says. And the same is true of God's people here. Samson's eye is persistently getting him into trouble. God is taking it out, and God does take it out. And he takes it out in mercy, so that Samson himself might be saved. What is the result here? Samson loses his power. She tests him. She plays with him. His strength is gone. The Philistines are upon you. He tries to shake himself, but his strength has disappeared. He knew not that the Lord was departed from him. Isn't that a solemn thought? Just as he is going in there, so the Lord is pulling back. And the Lord is removing himself. To the point where Samson is in such a stupor that he doesn't detect that he's become as weak as he really is. He's in a kind of fool's paradise where he thinks that he's just what he always was. And the stark fact is that he just is not. And it's obvious to others, but it's only obvious to himself when he's overcome and when he is overpowered. You know, spiritual declension is a sad thing. You know yourselves how people die in the cold. When you're dying in the cold, you become progressively numb to the point where you sleep and you are just not conscious of how cold you really are. That is so spiritually. The worst thing to be spiritually is insensible and insensitive with respect to your own condition and to your own situation. That's how he was. He was carrying on, and God was giving him enough strength to snap the ropes and so on, but it came to the point where God said, Samson, enough 
is enough and it is time for you to learn and to learn the hard way. What happens? Well, the Philistines take him and they bored out his eyes, literally. That's what it means in the Hebrew, to gouge out the eyes. Whether that was done with the fingers or as some say with a hot iron, the eyes were gouged out. It was an old form of cruel punishment and it was done to this man of God. He sinned by them and now he lost them. And what else do they do? They take him to Gaza, to their own stronghold, and they bind him with strong chains. And they put him inside a cell, and there he grinds. Now there was some grinding that was done by woman, and it was done by hand. But there was another kind of grinding that was done with a donkey millstone. And the donkey used to carry that millstone, or used to turn or rotate that millstone. I have an inclination to think that that is how Samson would be used here. That the remnant of his strength would be used in this way. That he would give him the job of a donkey pulling this millstone. Because is that not what he had become to them? He was now their sport and he was now their laughingstock. And here's the remarkable contrast. When Samson was strong, he burnt their harvest. When Samson was strong, he sent the foxes in to burn it because he was God's instrument of righteous judgment amongst the Philistines. He was doing the work of God. No, he's producing that harvest. He's grinding corn for the Philistines. And what can be more degrading than that? And that really to Samson was a picture, and I have no doubt that it stood to him as a picture of what he had become in his life. Well, he says, for 50 years... I ground out corn for God's people. For 50 years, he says, I did the work of the Lord and I destroyed and burnt the harvest of the Philistines. But then what have I done with my life? Well, I've brought shame upon the Lord's cause. I've brought shame upon myself and I am grinding out corn for the Philistines. And isn't it a fearful thought that sometimes I can do a work that is furthering the devil's kingdom rather than God's? I know that in the last analysis, all will work to God's good, to our good, to God's glory. I know that. But it doesn't take away from this. But in the short term, my life, my witness and conduct can be doing more harm than good. Is that true of yourself? Is it true of me? Is it not right for us sometimes to take stock and to look at ourselves and say, what effect is my life having on my witness? If Samson had stopped to ask these questions earlier... He wouldn't have found himself in this situation. But here he is. He is God's champion, but he is in captivity. And he has brought shame and dishonor upon himself and upon the Lord's cause. Ah, oh, my friends, you did not be a prayer. Close to our heart always. Keep me, O Lord. Guard my steps. Keep my feet, lest I slide away from the path of righteousness and the path of truth. Samson learnt these things. Samson lost his eyes and Samson is grinding for the Philistines in a prison cell. Yes, my friend, it is sad. But here is the wonder of the thing. At the end of the day, God has control. And this is God's man. And God will bring him back. Why? Yet, he says, I'll not take my love from him, nor false my promise make. And these are beautiful words. These are the words of God speaking to his own covenant people. In spite of their disobedience and their waywardness, God says this to them. In Psalm 89, If his children shall forsake my laws and go astray, and in my judgments shall not walk but wander from my way, if they my laws break and do not keep my commandments, I'll visit then their faults with rods, their sins with chastisements. Yet, I'll not take my love from him, nor false my promise make. My covenant I'll not break, nor change what with my mouth I speak. These are marvelous words. God will be glorified still in bringing this man back. It was great to make him what he was. But it is great too to bring him back when he has gone. 
My friends, sometimes we are prone to give up on people and say, Ah, oh, well, look at that man or look at that woman. The Lord was never in that person's life. Oh, well, you might be very wrong. You might be very wrong in that thought. Maybe the Lord is working through chastisements to bring such a person back to himself. And he has glory in that. Hezekiah discovered his own evil heart when he was brought low. So did Samson. And so will you. And so will I. And that is why we have these remarkable words in verse 22. How be it, we're told, the hair of his head began to grow again after he was shaven. That tells us that God was not inactive. For a short time he grinds out corn for the Philistines. But this is about to change into Samson's finest hour. And that's how God uses these things. His greatest hour was the hour of his death when God came back to him and made him strong. May the Lord bless these thoughts on his word. Let us pray. Lord, our God, we pray that thou would keep us from the sin which so easily besets us. And help us even when we are not dealt with, as we deserve. May we still not count or presume upon thy long-suffering towards us. Teach us that if we persist in a downward course, then we must indeed meet with thy chastisement. We pray, O Lord, for any in this house tonight who are caught in sin. We pray for those who have no knowledge of Christ, who are ensnared altogether by it. We pray that thou wouldst deliver them by thine own mighty hand. If any are backslidden, or on the path of it, we pray that thou wouldst restore them. Speak to us, O Lord, in word and providence, before we fall. Keep us, O Lord, and pardon us for Christ's sake. Amen.